Hi, before we get started today, a quick announcement. The second annual Canadian Advisor Tech Expo is being put on by the Financial Planning Association of Canada this year on March 14th to 17th. If you are a Canadian financial advisor or in management or an executive or just interested in what advisor technology is out there, I highly recommend you sign up. Tickets are on sale at advisortechexpo.ca. And now on to today's show. Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have David Whitcomb, VP of Product at MX. MX is a aggregator of aggregators in that it provides technology companies and traditional finance companies with a way of accessing a common data format across multiple different data aggregation companies and kind of pulls in the data from all of them, cleans them up and spits it out. It's a oversimplification and we'll get into a lot. And with that, here's my interview with David. David, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for having me, Jason. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure. So David Wickham of MX, tell us about MX. So MX is, uh, as you said, an aggregator of aggregators, but we like to think we're a lot more than that. Uh, we not only connect with other aggregators, but we also connect directly to some of the biggest banks in North America uh, for direct API access. But once we get the data, that's really where the magic at MX begins. We like to argue that we have the leading connections in North America but on top of that, we take the data that comes into our ecosystem and we've been doing enhancement of that data for 10 years. So we take an account and a transaction, take that transaction and we say, okay, from the bank, you can't always tell what it is. You might be able to, from a human eye, you might see the word McDonald's, but it may not be clear if that was a McDonald's bakery or a McDonald's restaurant. And so we're able to take what's in that string in what we've seen for the past decade over billions of transactions and say, no, that actually is definitely McDonald's restaurant or no, that's actually McDonald's roadway stop. So we're able to create a high level of intelligence with that data set for both for computers, not just for humans. But once we have that data in a refined and enhanced state, we've created personal financial management tools out of it and they're white labeled so that banks and credit unions and fintechs around the country can, can surface those experiences quickly and easily to their end users to help them understand their savings patterns, their spending patterns, if they have financial goals or, or debts, how that looks from, a, from some of the best visualizations uh, we believe in the market. I'd say on top of that as well, everything that's enabled via UX is enabled via API. And so if you want to create your own, you have access to all the tools we've built but to put your own spin on it, as well as those APIs also extend to things like account verifications and account ownership validations uh, and other tools like that that can be used for an ever-growing set of use cases. So it's really an exciting place to be. Excellent. So lots to dive into there, which we'll come back to. But before we get started, tell me about the origin of MX. How did it come to be? Yeah, the origin of MX was really our founder and co-founder, Ryan Caldwell and Brandon DeWitt. When they met each other, had two different companies that came together with a vision and a mission of empowering the world to be financially strong. And so when they did that, they asked themselves, how do we make the biggest impact? At that time, Mint was a, was a really important piece of financial health in the US, run by Intuit. And they said, if we take on Mint and go to direct consumer, that could be problematic. Intuit's got a ton of market share. It's going to be hard to, to displace them. So they said, how can we make, how can we connect to the most users? How can we make the biggest impact? And, and when they looked at the business, they looked at the markets, they said, we think if we create better financial management tools, we can sell directly to banks and credit unions around the country. And likely we can find entry points into some of the smaller digital banking platforms that help serve smaller communities of the US and Canada. And so that was a, a, a significant entry point into the world of, of banking and credit unions. So because we've entered the credit union and bank space first, we actually have we have over 
30 million users on our platform over the past decade, all feeding transactions through. And the beautiful part about our relationship there is that it's not just about a customer connecting their external accounts. It's that we have direct relationships with the banks and credit unions and now fintechs that are providing banking services and they're feeding their transactions directly into our ecosystem so their users benefit. So it's been, again, it's a, it was a different way of going to market to take on the challenges of the day and back in 2010. Excellent. So you mentioned a lot and let's, let's unpack this all, right? So to the average consumer, they're starting to see it. They haven't seen it already. Technology, which allows them to basically put their transactions from their bank account or their investment accounts into an app or into a dashboard or into some other place. If they're not familiar with mint.com, then that's how they would do it. Basically, that was always fed through either direct feeds or screen scraping. So giving the password, they take all the information and, and basically put on theirs. And that, that goes back a long way. Like Mint goes back like almost 20 years now, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And if you go back to, yeah. to think about Intuit as a whole and Quicken and QuickBooks and way back to Microsoft money, when Microsoft had personal mm. banking management, username and password sharing was the way it was done. There was sometimes you could export a file and import. That's the way Quick, I think QuickBooks still does some of that. But primarily it was username and password sharing. Risky, risky behaviors. The things we tell people not to do when you join, when you join as a new employee, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So basically, that was the origin of it. And of course, there's multiple companies out there in the marketplace doing there's some very mass, massive names, right? So you have the likes of um, of Yodely, who was originally powering Mint.com, if I'm correct, and then eventually got bought out by, uh, by Investnet. And Plaid and other players like in Canada, like with Flanks. So they've all got their own methodology for pulling data, right? Now, Here's the thing, not everybody's good at pulling, is the best at pulling data from different sources the same way, right? So for example, Flinks might be really good at something in Canada, terrible at something in the US, whereas, you know, Plaid could provide that utility. I mean, before Plaid and and, um, and Quofo merged, there was different verticals there. So not everybody is, is the best at everything, but they're also not providing end users the same output. So if I wanted to use multiple con- multiple sources for a very good reason, I'd have to then take that data and then, and then fix it because I'm basically getting, quote unquote, the same language, but with two different accents in a lot of ways. So you guys basically solved that problem. Talk to me for how you solve that problem, why that's important. So well, I mean, what you're talking about is data normalization, right? When you, whether you get, whether you get data directly from the bank via an API or via another aggregator, the data is often in different formats. It often has different values added to it or different parameters to that transaction. So that's where MX has created a ton of intelligence around grabbing different data models, specifically around accounts and transactions, normalizing the transactions, adding content to it around categorization, classification of what the transaction is, so that when when a user of an MX product or service gets the output of that account and transaction, we have we've normalized all of it and have and, and often typically enhanced it so that it's more readable and more usable for whatever is being built. And that's how we really set ourselves apart over the past decade. And again, that intelligence allows us to expand in different in different ways in the future very, very quickly. Yeah. And on this podcast, if you've been listening long enough, you've heard similar stories, particularly in the accounting space where companies will take data feeds from different accounting softwares and normalize them into one common data framework because it's better the better to just get one set of <laughs> of data yeah. in one common format than it is to yeah. basically have to deal with dozens of vendors. And you were already doing that anyway, let's be honest, right? Because you were pulling mm-hmm. that data from different financial sources in the first place. So you had to do it on some level. It's just a matter of taking it from other aggregators at the same time and creating that same that same framework, correct? That's right. That's right. Excellent. So basically, let's talk about the tools you created. So I've, this is all, it's nice that I can see all these transactions in one place. It's nice that, you know, if I'm dealing with a financial institution, I can also have the assets that are not held at that institution show up on a dashboard. But talk to me about the practical business case for 
the credit unions and banks and whoever else you deal with. Talk to me about the, the, the problems you're solving for them beyond just transparency into elsewhere. Right, so the, really, we have to go to the end user first. And that's that if you look at some of the, if you look at the patterns in general for fin, in fintech, financial technology that's outside of banking, it's that, as you've said, the ability to connect to your account is, is popping up in so many different places, whether it's Venmo to connect and make a payment to a friend, if it's PayPal to connect an account to pay a business. Everyone is getting into the payments world, which means I'm connecting my accounts in lots of different places. And in many cases, those connections then create accounts of their own. And so when we look at how users are connecting, they often don't connect to that new service and have immediate trust. And so for, from a bank and credit union perspective, mm-hmm. That's something that we believe they have. They still have the competitive advantage on. Banks and credit unions have the trust of their consumers because they have historically had money available at all times. Their payments network networks typically don't fail. Their ACH processing has been hardened like because of regulatory reasons, and so they perform. They have to. They are the the infrastructure that keeps money flowing, and so consumers trust that. But what's happening as as consumers create these accounts other places, whether it's investments or rewards cards or or PayPal accounts or Venmo accounts, there's now money lying in lots of different areas in ways that that, that hasn't happened in the past. And so if I'm the banker and my customer is now, I'm seeing money go out. So I see, I see a Venmo ACH transaction. I see a PayPal ACH transaction. We see money leaving, going to those third parties. Why not help the user connect those accounts in my experience? Because as a user, if I can if I really trust my bank the most and I can see all of my data in one place, it gives me the ability to be more intelligent about where it's going and how I'm spending it beyond just what's coming out of my debit card every month. That's the way we see a lot of banks moving is that they, they said, hey, like we can see this, but we also we know so much is happening out there, but we can't see any of it. And our users have to go all over the place to see their behavior. So MX enables an end user to bring everything in one place, view it in their online banking or mobile application, or view it in their fintech app if they trust the fintech app more, because we have lots of fintechs who are also consuming those same services. So that's the first layer. But once that's done, it allows a financial institution along with MX to analyze, well, where's the money going? And is that actually is that money actually working for you? Is it doing better? Can the bank or credit union or fintech make a better offer that will put that user in a better financial position? Uh, so that's a Another layer of what we're doing is helping create intelligence on the data to help help the institutions that are using MX help their customers. Because again, going back to that mission vision, our mission is to empower the world to be financially strong. We are not about, we, our founders said, we, we believe that if we follow our mission, we will inevitably be profitable. And so if we create better outcomes for end users, we believe that our clients will have better outcomes and that will, at the end of the day, be profitable and will and we'll thrive. And so that, that story has played true over the past decade. So you mentioned earlier about enriching the data and cleaning it up. And you mentioned in particular about the McDonald's example. For anyone who's ever looked at what their bank statement looks like and what it says you spent money at and scratched their head saying, what do you mean I said it at xyz.abcco? I don't understand what that was. And they're left confused. This is not a small thing, right? And that's that makes for a very terrible user experience. And I think back to, actually, I think it was when Apple Pay based announced their card, they, they talked about having to solve this problem. You know, talk to me about how you solve this problem, given how many vendors there are. I mean, McDonald's is a pretty simple example, right? There's like McDonald's all over the place, right? Like you have to you take in, you know, millions of transactions a day, probably. How, how do you solve for this for all the vendors that exist out there? The way we solve this problem is through multiple layers of analysis. The benefit we have over some upstarts who have tried to come into the enhancement world and the in the merchant identification world is that we've had human eyes in conjunction with computer analysis for the past decade. And so we see some people trying to jump in and say, we're just going to use machine learning to do it all. 
And because the, the data that comes in is so dirty, it's been really hard for just machines to do it without having a clean set of data. So because we're living and thriving on a clean set of data from the past 10 years, it's been a mix of machines and humans. Our data sets are more highly trainable. And so mm-hmm. as we build our team of doctors and data scientists, which I call our, our data scientists, our machine learning capabilities are starting to propel us forward in, in improving that categorization, classification, merchant identification even further. As we kind of look at external data sets that have location data and merchant data in them to feed into and do kind of string analysis with. So string analysis, let's say, is a very light way of saying what we're doing. But ultimately, it comes down to breaking apart a transaction string into different chunks, identifying significant portions, and then using machine learning to start uh, identifying the who's, the what's, the where's, and the how's of it all. But it's pretty, pretty amazing. Definitely. So getting the right logo is a bit of, is, involves a lot of human beings and a lot of machine learning. Quite astonishing, but, uh, yeah. but necessary. Excellent. Okay. So we talked about that. Now you talked about the data enrichment and ins- the data insight. Talk about the insight mm. that you provide to the vendors that you're utilizing. So first of all, we, we do have a product called MX Insights and, and not to make this a pitch, but when we think about in, insights, so historically, personal financial management has been what I would say is called financial literacy. I, David Whitcomb, have learned how to manage my finances. And when I look at tools, those tools make sense of how I what I learned about. And they help me be financially literate and understand my financial life. When we think about insights, we're actually thinking about it in terms of how does how do we feed the right insight at the right time to make an impact, to let David know that he can save money right now because he has more on average in his checking account that he has for the past six months. That hey, he normally makes it he normally makes a loan payment on the 25th of June. It's not or July. It's now the 28th of July. We need to make sure he has an alert that he may need to pay that loan because he might become delinquent. And so again, if I look at typical personal financial management tools, they don't tell me what actions are needed now or needed in the next two days. They they help me understand the lay of the land. And so we think that we're in a shift from financial literacy to advocacy because insights allow me to, in a timely way, engage with my finances and know what I need to do and when I need to do it. And so we're, we're, yeah. insights is really a shift in approach to how we think about financial management. And we think about it very much in terms of literacy to advocacy. Yeah. So, so this, effectively, you're powering the next best action through, through utilizing the data that you have access to. That's right. And really, it's not even the next best, I would say. It's kind of the next necessary. Mm-hmm. It's the action that you normally take that you forgotten about because it's just what what should happen, right? I think if you start looking at the at the industry at large, like buy now, pay later became huge. And you look at the numbers of people who have missed a BNPL payment. I don't necessarily think it's because they intend to or they did it fraudulently because my, my story is I, I opened too many accounts. I work in fintech. I've been working in financial services for almost 15 years now. And I opened a ton of accounts just by default because I want to see experiences. I want to understand how it works. So I, went to, I had to replace tires. So I went to Discount Tire Direct. And they offered me 24 months, 0% financing at checkout. So I thought, huh, like, sure, why not? Let me give it a try. But I had to make my payment on time to get that benefit. So two months in, I missed my payment because it was a new account. It was Mm -hmm. something I didn't normally do. I hadn't connected for automated payments. And so suddenly I found myself like out $1,200. And I was like, oh no, I had an interest fee. I had a late fee and I have the means to, to afford that. So I was safe, but it's one of those cases where it made me think, okay, I opened that new account. I took an, I made a new decision that was not normal. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people are finding themselves there. And with tools like MX offers, it allows you to centralize that stuff 
more quickly so that you can effectively manage. And I didn't take that step. Like I didn't, I didn't help myself out. <laughs> With a doctor who smokes, you're not taking your own lessons here. Come on. Okay. So one of the things you talked about too was getting direct feeds or working collaboration with you know credit unions and banks. So that's got to be a conversation that has evolved a lot over time. Like, can you speak to what it was like in the early days going to them saying, hey, we can, can you give us access to your data? We'll give you access to other data. Like, and did they chase you out with the pitchfork? And if so, when did that stop? And, and how did that turn around? So I'd say in the early days, there was a mix because again, MX worked primarily with banks or with banks and credit unions. That was our the way we went to market in our first probably five to eight, six to eight years. And so is in some sometimes a bank would say, yeah, you can act the same connect API that we use to send you data, you can use to aggregate externally. You can send your use an API to connect through usernames and passwords. And like we think that's a good thing. Some some banks and credit unions got it and allowed it. Um, others said, no way. Why would we give our data to our enemies? Right? Why, why would we enable our competitors to know, know who our customer is better, even though they were buying the services to do it on their, on their own? So kind of, uh, it was a mixed bag. But we often look back to kind of earlier days and it was very much a world of piracy or what we call piracy, right? How do you avoid detection so that they just assume it's the user logging in to look at their accounts and transactions? And so there was a there, the hope was really if they're not going to let us have it via API, can we just hide well enough that if we're building that scrape of, of the data? Can we just hide from their detection systems enough that we can go we can grab the data, uh, store it, and and help the user benefit again? Always acknowledging this is not us sneaking in without the consumer's permission. It's all consumer permission, but it, it was definitely a world of how do we avoid detection. And so that that shift is is very distinct to one of detection avoidance to one of we like to call it sanctioned access. Because even right now, APIs are are becoming more normalized. MX is helping them become more normalized with one of our products. And at the same time, it's going to take banks years. We we estimate three to five years before it is kind of a ubiquitous for banks to have a token-based API for data access for customers. What so, country are we talking about here? So I can always, <laughs> I can always point out how I, how my life sucks, but continue. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I would dare say it's... Uh, well, we know that in the U.S. it's going to take a while. We expect rules mm-hmm. to rulemaking to happen with the CFPB in 2023. Uh, it's pretty. We think it's pretty clear that, that the rule will be issued, but that also means that there will be implementation timelines and grace periods. And we think it'll apply to the biggest banks who are all, will already be compliant already. And then as it trickles down to smaller banks and credit unions, there might be exceptions that allow them to, for longer implementation times because they don't have millions of dollars to spend on APIs. So we, we expect the normal facilitation to happen. In Canada, though, it seems like what I love about Canada is that I feel like they're on the fast track. <laughs> yeah, right. Continue. Continue. Well, yeah. Well, I would say fast track regulatory. Like they've come out so far pretty strong in saying we're going to have a consumer directed finance regime. We're going to make this happen. And some of the big bank, the bigger banks in Canada are quickly moving to say, hey, here's our announcement with our data sharing agreement. Whether there's technology there or not might be a different, a different thing. Uh, but well, the idea that the agreement is there is actually a really big deal. Because look, in- I'll give you that. It's uh, and the and the and the devil's in the details on this stuff. And yeah. I'm a cynic because I've lived here forever. First off, the deadline that they announced for the launch of this thing was laughable. There was no way moving heaven and earth they would be able to meet that. So that was the first piece. Second thing, uh, the largest bank in the country recently announced a deal with with I think it was with, um, with Plaid, which I was shocked by. Now the devil's always in the detail. The question is. What did they sign to get access to, and what are they prohibited from ever touching in any way, shape, or form? Like I can tell you from experience that other aggregators have got in there and said they've said, "Okay, we'll give you these four pieces of data, but you're signing a contract that you are not ever going to even attempt to take 
any other form of data at any point in any other method or way, like literally just cutting them off at the knees. Right. So hopefully, you know, Platt's big enough that hopefully that this is, uh, they got, they got enough to, to actually help consumers out there, but I love to see the contract. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, from folks around the industry, I've heard it's like, it is volumes thick. So it could be a, could be mm-hmm. an encyclopedia of its own for terms and conditions. I'll, and I'll take the PDF to look at limitations. Right. That's not right. the search for limitation <laughs> or prohibited. Yeah. But that, I mean, that is the big debate in the industry, though, is what is the question is, what is proprietary and a competitive advantage and what is the consumer's data? And that's really where the, the, the debate comes in. I get that. But as a consumer who generates that data, I take great offense to the entire <laughs> so, so and this is where yeah. some FIs would very strongly say interest rates are proprietary. And as the consumer, I would say, oh, I, what if so, I'm paying that interest rate? I don't understand. Right. <laughs> totally. And, and I ran I, I was a. I worked for credit union for a decade. I was on loan committees because I ran the mortgage shop for five years of that decade. And so I saw, like I was a part of underwriting. I was a part of, of risk pricing. Like I, I get some of the proprietary nature of it. At the same time, if we want people to pay loans on time and third parties are helping them manage debt and pay on time, knowing the credit rate, credit uh, or not the credit, the credit risk and the interest rate is really important to helping correctly navigate your financial life. So in my mind, it's uh, if we can't collect interest rate and help users manage debt appropriately, it's actually a consumer advocacy loss, in my opinion. So that's a, the debate will rage on. And I think between politicians and, and lobbyists, we'll, we're all fighting for, our, for yeah. a consumer in one way or another. Yes. I mean, well, I, if the consumer consumers and mass ever stop to look at this, they'd be horrified and disgusted by the position taken by most of these institutions, which is the only reason they get away with it. Anyway, such is life. Yeah, we're not going to solve the open banking problem <laughs> attempt soon. Deep breath. All right. So, okay. You got to a point where you essentially have direct access to uh, direct and indirect access to millions or well, whatever number of institutions. You're processing untold numbers of volumes per day. You're making these things look pretty. You're turning them around and you are basically pushing them out to any number of partners, whether they be fintechs or traditional financial institutions, who are then basically serving up that information to consumers, which begs the question of what's next? Like, what are you guys working on that's of interest these days that, you know, you think is really cool and you can share uh, mm-hmm. without violating any kind of NDA or something? Insert. Yeah. So I think the first thing is actually creating the tools that help banks and credit unions and fintechs who are offering banking services have secure tokenized APIs. Like that, to me, that is in in cloud first, Mm. cloud native technologies that accelerate secure permissioned access. Like that, just that's, that is one of our biggest and top priorities of 2022. And that will mature in 2023. And there's some stuff I can't talk about there to your, to your not, for what what we think is going to come there, but we're creating intelligence for the holders of the data. Because again, we really think that the trust and security belong in the data provider, the bank, the credit union, or the, the banking service provider. Like they hold the keys, they hold the security. I like to say, like they're not just stewards of people's money; they're stewards of people's data. And so those two things go hand in hand. And so we're creating so like we're creating a platform around that specifically. And that to me, it's incredibly exciting. I think layering on top of that, some of the connections that we're making to, to core online, core both online banking and core accounting system or account processing systems allows us to start enabling things like intrabank money movement so that if I have a savings account and checking account and we surface an insight that says, hey, you can save $300 now, 
can push a button and have the money move. And that's that's creating the advocacy, create the ability to make that payment in real time as a part of the inside experience to me is incredibly exciting. And so that's something that is highly complex because of the limitations and banking systems that should be there, but has the most opportunity for, for I would say, is making people's financial lives better and more nimble. So those are two places I get really excited. I think the third is we continue, we continue to deepen how we empower the world to be financially strong. With the shifts in the way payments are being made, with the shifts in the way consumers are engaging payments, whether that's BNPL or ACH-based payments, we sit on a lot of data that mm-hmm. can enable that stuff. We can, we are accessing account numbers and routing numbers to enable some of those use cases. And so we see that by, by ensuring that the data we have is leveraged in the right ways, we can actually create a more secure sharing environment so that if fraud is occurring in account connection, we can actually help stop it or or mitigate it with banks and credit unions and fintechs along the way. So like those things, when you're looking at empowering the world to be financially strong, it's not just about how someone manages their finances. It's also about how to ensure that it's secure when the movement happens. And so we're, we're digging deeper and deepening how we see the empowerment of the world. That's stuff I get really excited about as well. Well, it makes a lot of sense. And it's funny and a wonderful priority, wonderful thing you're doing for institutions should be doing it themselves in the first place. But you know, <laughs> it is what it is, not technology companies. So before we wrap up, I have three questions I ask everybody then on the positive note. First one is, if you had one wish for something to change in your industry or your company, what would it be? Industry-wide, I, my one wish would be that everyone had modern authentication ecosystems so that secure data sharing was just the norm. Like, mm. That would make life so much easier. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, <laughs> versus, we don't understand. Our server works in COBOL. I, I, what do you mean, put it on the internet? Anyway, so <laughs> second question. What's been the biggest challenge in getting MX to where it is today? I think the biggest challenge is is both the, getting the secure access as well as just the, the writing the continual waves of innovation. We have to stay on top on top of our game. We're in a competitive market. Uh, FinTech has grown incredibly. And so ensuring that we maintain startup mentality and agility, it's not easy. It, re- it requires kind of a cultural protection and ensuring that we don't get overrun by bureaucracy, but we can still pivot when we need to. I think that is a challenge that will continue as we grow and mature. So I uh, I think it's something we we're overcoming. And I think it's something we'll continue to, to both fight and overcome in the future. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. That, as soon as you said that, that to myself, I'm pretty sure you guys never foresaw aggregating crypto accounts when... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Started out. Yeah. Yeah. And the last question is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and keeps you getting up in the morning to keep on fighting the good fight? So I think for me, I'm naturally curious. And so the way that MX is moving right now is we're going into different, different access mechanisms and different use cases and verticals that allow me to, to stimulate my curiosity. Migrations to cloud are also a, a big piece of what we're doing that keep me up in the morning. I just think we have one of the most, one of the largest opportunities in North America right now to make an impact in, in the financial world of millions of human beings. So for me, like that ultimately drives me to keep waking up and coming to work, exciting to do my job every day at MX. And I think it's something that is a, a deep passion of many people at MX is that our mission is still alive and strong in what we do. And the way that we're going about it is full of honesty and integrity. And that will continue to try to drive people to better successful financial lives. Excellent. Well, David, thank you so much. Very much appreciate the time you've taken uh, to go over this and uh, keep up the good work. I mean, yours is a name that I, I mention quite frequently when people talk about uh, rights to data and access. So I think when you reached out, I said, Hey, don't worry about it. You're totally coming on the podcast. I'm really familiar awesome. with you guys. So happy to have you on. <laughs> love it. I love it. Thank you so much. Excellent. So that was today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you're in the market for data aggregation services and enrichment and all the things that we discussed today, by all means, please check out MX. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. 
This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.